Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Take advantage of the advanced video capabilities offered by Bosch to help reduce your shrink risk. Integrate video recordings with point-of-sale data for visual verification of transactions and exception reporting. Use video analytics for immediate notification of important AP-related events, and leverage analytics metadata for fast forensic searches for evidence and to improve merchandising and operations. Learn more about extending your video system beyond simple surveillance in Zones 1-4 through of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science Podcast. This is the latest in our weekly update series. I'm joined by uh, Tony D'Onofrio and Tom Ian, our producer, Kevin Tran. Um, and we're going to just spend a few minutes uh, updating on what we're seeing and hearing in the world. Um, and so, uh, of course, I, during the pandemic, talking a little bit about uh, COVID-19 um, and uh, the effects, but uh, what's going on to uh, liberate people from their uh, isolation, quarantine. Um, and so uh, we know that there are uh, more and more new test kits coming out. There are now uh, uh, a retail version, a, co- a home test kit that's been uh, approved and um, at, a, at a reasonable price point, I understand, uh, that will be going out. Some have already received it. Um, uh, I myself am going again today to get the COVID through the University of Florida, but the testing uh, protocol uh, is the sort of the numbers have surged a little bit uh, in the United States and other countries around the world. Um, and so some of the hospitalizations are up. Um, it's been some really interesting uh, research coming out about how uh, COVID, particularly those with the serious, serious disease, um, have uh, been treated differently now that the, there's been so much learning and sharing and research done uh, on how to handle somebody that's got the disease, uh, a patient, or particularly those with very severe symptoms to extremely severe symptoms. Um, and just redoing particularly with ventilators and that there were a lot of people that probably got sicker or even lost their lives because um, as per normal uh, physicians and scientists are racing to understand how to best save lives. Um, and so you're seeing much higher and higher survival rates, um, even for those with the most serious illness um, it, that also have the comorbidities that, um, you know, that are helping those underlying conditions, if you will. Uh, so, um, there are now 319 therapies, uh, either in, in some sort of preclinical or a clinical, uh, assessment. And, um, we know of course on the vaccination front that, uh, globally, uh, the right thing to do, uh, as well as the smart thing to do is to, uh, help ensure that, uh, is from 70 to 90% of the world's population, human population are vaccinated, um, so that we're not dealing with this and all the variants. And we're seeing that the virus, as would be expected, is adjusting and adapting a little bit to the conditions it experiences as it tries to maximize um, the infection chain, its movement, survival, um, and its growth in humans. And as our antibodies and T cells rise to the occasion, uh, the virus learns those that aren't killed and uh, they are transmitted and they adjust and adapt to what they're experiencing in our bodies, immune systems, the uh, adaptive as well as the innate systems adapt. Again, it's like, it's what we deal with in crime prevention. It's uh, measure, countermeasure, counter, countermeasure. So 
Um, we're seeing that happening. Uh, COVAX is the uh, global group that's combined uh, most many countries, if not most, to uh, figure out ways to identify uh, what they're trying to do and how they're trying to do it globally. COVAX's goal right now is to acquire 2 billion doses and have contracts and agreements with most of the major um, vaccine, vaccine manufacturers and the governments themselves. Uh, UNICEF has stood up a dashboard designed to very carefully focus delivery where, how, which one, which vaccine, and so on, make sure that everything's acquired and distributed, but have a very visual uh, mechanism for everybody to coordinate um, as seamlessly and efficiently as possible. Um, we know uh, right now there are 85 vaccines in preclinical clinical assessment, either uh, via heavy-duty computer simulation uh, as well as animal models. Um, 43 more vaccines, additional vaccines in phase one safety and dose ranging trials, uh, uh, 20 vaccine candidates in phase two, more of a safety and efficacy effectiveness trials. And then finally, now we're up to 18 in phase three. We know that the Pfizer uh, BioNTech and the Moderna um, US have uh, both received emergency auth authorization. Uh, millions have been gen uh, already had been manufactured. Millions of doses, hundreds of millions of doses. Those are, of course, being moved out. We know the Pfizer vaccine requires, uh, you know, roughly negative seventy <laughs> below zero, seventy below zero temperature. Um, uh, once it's taken out, it rapidly degrades. So we see that that's a uh, an issue and uh, where and how to distribute. Uh, but again, the government's had, uh, along with all the commercial partners and others have had uh, several months to try and put together as efficient and realistic uh, transportation plan as possible. And so we know that uh, millions have already been vaccinated around the world, but particularly the United States and the UK um, of healthcare workers uh, moving more uh, and trying to understand that. We know that at Stanford University and I'm sure others developed algorithms and methods to best uh, and most efficiently and uh, uh, most safely administer the vaccine to their workers um, to make sure that they were safe as they were treating COVID patients um, and that they were also not uh, spreading, further spreading the uh, the virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus to others. Um, but there was a, a, a bit of a hiccup, I understand, in, the, in that the algorithm was looking at age and it has weight factors and models are as good as they are. And that just means, uh, so you saw some homebound, very senior physicians or scientists, for instance, getting vaccinated that really are not exposed to patients and don't expose themselves to patients, or certainly not on a regular basis, whereas uh, uh, very young and normally very healthy uh, uh, medical students that have graduated and are now residents, you know, or interns, um, or other others like uh, fellows that are have completed their internship and residency, um, were not uh, vaccinated. Presumably, the algorithm didn't identify them. Not while they were having max exposure and exposing themselves to others, they weren't uh, as at risk. But yet, they were the ones that were most likely to contract uh, the disease. So um, they had to redo how they're doing it. So we're all learning together how to do uh, COVID nineteen and twenty twenty. That's for sure. Um, the Moderna uh, version of the vaccine, their vaccine, also an M M uh, uh, RNA type is um, does not have to be uh, refrigerated or frozen at the same level. So that might 
prove much easier to handle, allow for much wider distribution. Um, they're also finding that in many of the vials that uh, very efficient uh, medical staff are able to get more doses than are normally in the vial, out of the vial. So um, that's sort of a bonus in some parts of the country. Um, the J&J &J vaccination or their vaccine version uh, continues to be uh, in phase three trial. Uh, there, some are expecting that potentially next month uh, in January uh, of 2021, it will possibly also receive emergency use authorization. They too have hundreds of millions of doses ready and uh, start to go out in the United States elsewhere. Um, so with Pfizer, Moderna, potentially J&J, &J, uh, with the Oxford AstraZeneca, which is also um, completing its phase three trials and trying to get out and get in uh, the version, the European version, the UK version of emergency use authorization. Um, <clears throat> we're getting much closer um, at uh, LPRC. You know, many of you know that we had our cluster calls. We had multiple, multiple calls during the beginnings of the pandemic uh, so that uh, 60 plus retail chains and our team could get together and uh, cross plan and share and uh, lessons learned, uh, adaptations, uh, wins and failures, um, and so forth. Uh, the same thing, we had uh, two uh, cluster call groupings with around the looting and writing, uh, then stood up, of course, which you all have heard about, FusionNet. Uh, we had an election preparation uh, call as well, cluster call. Um, and then now we've had the first, and we'll be getting ready to have our second, probably in the second week of January, our COVID vaccine distribution call. So uh, with our supermarket, drugstore chain, and mass merchants, in other words, the retailers that will be um, involved in sort of mass uh, vaccinations in the way that they do with, with flu vaccines, um, even though the CVS and Walgreens are currently in, uh, preparing for it, in some cases already initiated, um, uh, vaccinations in uh, elder care homes, starting with the staff uh, and then going to the actual residents. Um, so a lot to be learned and understood there. The security level seems to be roughly the same security level <clears throat> in transporting the vaccines, especially during while it's rare as far as being in the marketplace, um, the same as are handled for um, uh, you know narcotic substances and so on, in other words, the opioids. So um, uh, more to come on that. Uh, our working groups continue to work away on um, the, the different issues. Uh, will not be any more calls this year for the working groups, but the organized retail crime uh, had a fantastic ending. A couple of studies that they put out, uh, some planning for how they want to go forward. Uh, the uh, innovation working group, the same. Um, they outline their strategy and what all they would like to cover. Um, those are two I'm most in touch with, the data analytics working group, the product protection working group, the retail fraud working group, uh, supply chain protection, violent crime working groups. All those uh, went through their uh, end of year planning, wrap ups, um, guest speakers, uh, looking at the different issues that they deal with. Um, a lot of exciting work there. Um, at Operation Next Level, which is uh, driven by the uh, board of advisors uh, at the LPRC to broaden and deepen membership uh, with even more retail companies participating uh, here, hopefully uh, is the aspiration as well as more tech and other solution partner members uh, is gone through heavy planning last week here in Gainesville, actually. Um, 
And so look forward to a lot of Operation Next Level new marketing materials and video clips. And you'll be uh, Lighthouse Consultants, um, three uh, industry luminaries, Chad McIntosh, the longtime VP at uh, Bloomingdale's, and, uh, but a lifelong LP professional. Alongside of Jeff Powers, Russ Tate, Brian Hayes are all working on um, identifying and contacting leading retailers and um, others, uh, solution partners, for example. <clears throat> then north of the border, Stephen O'Keefe up in Canada, Tony D'Onofrio, and some other luminaries uh, working in the UK and Europe uh, to spread the good word and to continue to grow the uh, LPRC research and results community. Uh, a lot of excitement. Uh, the idea that we would have some more resources continue to expand our capability in the United States, in uh, Canada, uh, South and Central America, of course, the UK and Europe, to do even more good work um, uh, at, at all levels, offender interviewing, randomized controlled experiments or trials, um, data modeling, but a lot of innovation too using AI, uh, IoT, and others. So uh, we're excited about it and looking forward to it. The Safer Places Lab concept continues to grow um, and have be more sophisticated. Um, more to come on the detail. We'll, we're going to do a visual uh, crime science podcast um, in January. Uh, it's, I know that uh, Tom Meehan and uh, Tony D'Onofrio and Kevin, our uh, producer, wanted to do that. So it'll allow us to showcase a little bit um, our, our different labs and where they stand and where they're going. Uh, so we're excited to show that off. So with no further ado, I'd like to go over uh, to Tom Meehan, and Tom's going to fill us in on uh, the latest and greatest. Tom, if you would. Great. Thank you, Reed. Uh, just wanted to cover three things, and uh, one, I'll start with something that I spoke about briefly last week, which is uh, this hack uh, that is uh, thought to be from the Russian government, a, a state-sponsored hack uh, on U.S. infrastructure. And um there's a lot of news and a lot of information surrounded around this. And just to kind of recap where we were when we spoke about it last week and last week when we spoke about it, it was very, very new news is the belief is somewhere um, in early March. Uh, it could be earlier, but the belief is sometime in early March that there was a hack that uh, was successfully um, made through a software program uh, through a malware. And uh, this software program, as we talked about last time, is actually in a intrusion detection or network uh, security software. Um, so it is in the, in the cybersecurity space. It's very well uh, known and reputable and used throughout uh, many commercial institutions and government um, facilities. Uh, right now, the, the U.S. government is is still uh, really speaking about Treasury and the Department of Commerce. If we remember about five years ago, there was a pretty substantial hack around um, secret, top secret clearance and clearance records. So this is um, unfortunately not a new thing, but uh, this is arguably one of the largest uh, uh, intrusions in history you'll you'll hear that um the news sometimes will portray it as the biggest in five years there's really a lot of unknowns here one of the big the big question here is what's the risk for us um and then how does the u.s respond um russia has continued to say what they all what they have in the past is that they do not um, participate in cyber activities and they want to strengthen 
the relationship here, but there are a lot of blurred lines on what is constituted as an act of war. This is attack uh, an attack on some level of infrastructure. So a lot more to come here. Um, one of the things that what what I always uh, say is it just reminds all of us is you know to use as many good uh, habits and practices as we can, and to understand that this is very similar to what we deal with here at the LPRC. Is um, you can have the best software and the best policies and procedures in place. Um, the bad guys, the nefarious actors, are working day and night to defeat them. So it's important to talk about things openly, share what's working, and work together to try to run through this. There's a lot of great information if you're into the cybersecurity world here about the technical aspects so far. Um, uh, but the the reality here is there's a lot of unknowns. And uh, unfortunately, because of the political state of the, uh, of the country, the information um, is not necessarily being balanced by the U.S. government. It is uh, predominantly driven by media. And uh, depending on what you read, depends on what the picture. The one thing that's consistent here is that um, there's a, a firm belief that the Russian um, military intelligence uh, and uh, an outside group that is sponsored by them um, had involvement. Uh, there, there has been some conversation about the potential for China masking as Russia, but that's highly unlikely with these level of sophisticated attacks and the amount of um, work that the U.S. government has done to look at this. Um, it, it really, it, it really doesn't it's very unlikely that we wouldn't actually know where it is. Um, and what recently came out this week is that hundreds of large corporations were also affected by this um, and that uh, the FBI was notifying them. Uh, I think at this point, if you use this software, you probably have a good understanding of that there was a potential there, but it, it's it's very, very uh, important just to stay up to speed on it. And we'll continue to update on it. There's not a lot more from last week. Uh, switching gears a little bit, and then we talked a lot about vaccinations, but I just want to talk very quickly about two bulletins that went out. Uh, one, I don't often talk about Interpol, but Interpol law, uh, issued a global alert to law enforcement. Um, uh, Interpol is comprised of 194 countries, but they did a global alert. They call it an orange notice um, to outline the potential criminal activity in relationship to COVID-19 vaccinations. Um, and we did talk about this before, but it, it, what they're talking uh, with Interpol's um, notice really outlined is the examples of crimes where individuals are either advertising, selling, or creating fake vaccines, as well as putting up websites to spread misinformation. And this is pr predominantly about selling of non-vaccine, uh, you know, non-real vaccines, um, and then the distribution of counterfeit vaccines. Uh, and switching gears to the U.S., the Department of Homeland Security and ICE also issued a warning. And um, this is kind of a two-phased approach. Right now, uh, what what the United States is doing is they actually have a, a two-plan um, they have Operation Stolen Promise version one and two. They're in the version two phase and the version two is really about making sure that um, they're attacking aggressively any known counterfeiting, um, unauthentic websites, fraud schemes, and they have dedicated resources to this. And we, we talked about this early in um, COVID and, and throughout uh, that of all of the scams that occurred, even the puppy scams and how... Um, you know, folks are taking action 
to take advantage of the situation. Uh, the alarming rate here is that obviously this is a vaccine and there's a, a, a huge demand for it. And this allows to open a door again for that um, that that potential for a real scam. And Reed also mentioned self-testing. This is one of the things that, um, you know, making sure that you do the research, that if you do see a self-test, that it is the approved self-test, that you're not just um, spending money on something that's not there. Not to mention with both of these, the safety concerns of potential counterfeit here. Right now, um, it's really, you know, the I think... Uh, the Interpol puts, you know, vaccinations are a prime target for organized crime, and it really opens up the door for a much more organized group to take advantage of it. And then lastly, I'll just uh, top it off with another piece related to the vaccines and something that I don't think we have talked about, really. We talked about supply chain challenges. We talked about um, some of the other things, but rolling out, you know, this vaccine globally is a huge uh, information and technology challenge. Uh, a Harvard Business Review did a really good article on this. I wrote an article on some of the challenges uh, that will get published shortly. Um, and it really is about the, the logistical nightmare of trying to distribute millions of anything in a short period of time is challenging enough when you think of 10, 50, 10 to 50 million doses Adding in the temperature requirements creates a whole nother challenge. And then when you think about the IT standard uh, standard process here is there's not really in the US and um, I would say globally, there's not really a standardized method of how personal health data is engaged or exchanged. So if you've recently gone to a doctor, you'll start to see that there are a lot of um, hospitals that are associating themselves with each other and um, have information sharing available better than they've ever had, but it's still restricted due to HIPAA. They at least can tell someone was treated for something they can at least run through. With the vaccines, and this is um, one of the things, you know, the, the standardization of data is really important because as we continue to run through and a third and fourth vaccine comes out, there's a real risk that people could get um, different uh, vaccines throughout the dosage. So that's one of the IT challenges that are, that are coming up, as well as um, aligning state and, and really regulatory ammunition uh, registration. There is no way to do that today. So there's a thought of how do we do that? How do we do that uh, and protect people's privacy? How do we do it and actually be able to manage it and make it standardized so that if you did go into a doctor, someone could go into a screen and actually look up and say, oh, you got the Pfizer vaccine, you know, th those type of things. Uh, uh, additionally, this kind of this digitized um, passport, if you will, um, to, or a portable equivalent to be able to actually protect your privacy, but in, to show that the vaccine was done. As we start to go back to normal, expect, um, especially with foreign travel, the, the, the need to validate that you were immunized. And so how do we do that? How do we do that electronically? How do we protect that? How do you, you know, how, how is it protected if you do go to JFK and they, they have a computer to check it? Are they putting your information into a system uh, to, to say, yes, this person was checked? All of those things at face value sound very easy. When you think about doing them on a global scale and protecting it, it really becomes challenging. Uh, and as well as making people feel safe from a privacy standpoint and just to really un to let people understand why you're doing it is a challenge especially when you talk about cross-border um, standardization uh, and then you know when the the next piece of it is the privacy um, 
uh, the portability and cyber uh, security trade-offs, taking all those things into consideration and saying, how do you take all of those and really run, you know, weigh out what the right way to do it, avoid the potential risks that occur. And then as we started the conversation earlier, knowing that you have nation state actors that uh, if this database exists, that there is value in getting into that data. Now, there are a whole bunch of different technical ways to protect data like this. Blockchain is suitable and really by design, this is a perfect blockchain experiment where there's no centralized repository and using extremely high level encryption, um, encryption that to date isn't really, um, hasn't really been challenged and will probably won't be for another you know, five to seven years, uh, but then getting every country aligned with that uh, is challenging enough. If you think about the U.S., just think about how challenging it is to get state to state. So a lot of uh, risk and challenges ahead of us around the vaccination. So yes, I, I think it, we're in a great place and we're moving forward, but I also think that there's a significant amount of risk and challenge. And when we think about risk and challenges, just add the potential just um, catastrophic IT issue. We all have been somewhere at the airport or using transportation when the computer is down and there's nothing you can do uh, about it except for wait for it to come back up. That is the other challenge here that comes into play is whatever is put into place, how do the how do you have a life cycle um, challenge, you know, upkeep challenge? How what's what's an appropriate amount of downtime when you're thinking about a vaccination uh, type tracking system? So I think that we'll see a lot more to come with this in, in the coming days. I also think we'll see a uh, a plethora of scams and um, coming in the next six to eight weeks. And keep in mind with those scams that you can have very organized groups that are um, you know selling to or you know to pharmaceutical distribution network. So there's definitely going to be more and we'll we'll stay abreast of it and make sure that we keep everybody clued into what's going on. Over to you, Tony. Thank you very much, uh, Tom. Great information. Same with you, Reed. It's great to get these updates in terms of where we're at on the journey with the pandemic and also the risks and, and also the great work at LPRC. This week, I'm going to start with the uh, just published organized retail crime report from NRF. Just came out. Organized retail crime costs retailers $719,548 per $1 billion in sales in 2020. That's up from $703,320 in 2019. This is the fifth year in a row where the ORC figure has topped $700,000 and is up significantly from $493,940 in 2015. The issue of ORC is continuing to grow among ORC victims. Three and four report an increase in the past year. Retailers believe the increase in ORC is related to incidents, may be the result of changing laws and penalties for shoplifting. Many states have increased the threshold for what constitutes a felony, which had the unintended consequence of allowing criminals to steal more without being afraid of stronger penalties related to felony charges. Nearly two thirds of retailers report that they have seen an increase in the average ORC case value in, in uh, this year. The industry is still supportive of a federal ORC law. Over six in 10 believe federal ORC law is needed to effectively combat the issue. 61% say their company is prioritizing ORC more than five years ago, 52% say 
say the company is allocating additional technology resources to address the risk. 36% say their company is increasing its annual loss prevention budget because of the increased risks. The top five cities impacted in 2020 by ORC were Los Angeles, Chicago, Miami, New York, and San Francisco. And the top five stolen categories in ORC were designer clothes, laundry detergent, razors, designer handbags, and deodorant. So the prime, the uh, ORC crime continues. Let me switch to some new research also just published from Bain and Company on how sharpening how shoppers are spending this holiday season and where we're at so far. With less spending on discretionary categories such as travel and restaurants, retail sales grew 9% in November. It's beginning to look like a lot, like a record holiday season. 35% and more holiday shopping this November versus last November. 51% shop Black Friday deals before the actual dates was coming earlier, as we talked about in earlier podcasts. In-store foot traffic declined, but store sales are still growing. Consumers shopped an average of three stores in November and made trips once a week. Both were down from 2019, yet they're spending 3% more in stores than last year, resulting in $264 billion in in-store sales last month. 27% in grocery are using buy online pickup in stores or BOPIS. 16% in non-grocery are using BOPIS. 40% reporting making additional purchases because they're using BOPIS. And 21% report making additional pur purchases when using curbside. This study also allowed consumers to give a grade to BOPIS, so for buy online, pick up and store, they got four out of five stars, retailers, and for curbside satisfaction, they got even better, 4.3 out of five stars. So consumers like these services, and the reason they like these services are, these are the top three, short wait times, the order is ready upon arrival, number two, affordable, lower cost and delivery, and number three, it's reliable, accurate, and they get accurate, complete order. So how do you continue this into 2021? So Bain recommends meet the customers where they want, make BOPIS and curbside offerings more satisfying to customers, continue to prioritize safety, keep delivery promises, and improve mobile and, de and desktop browser experiences. So that's a little bit on how we're doing through the holidays with the latest research. Uh, the economists also published their top trends to watch in the new year. So let's move into the new year. These are the top 10 things that the economist is seen as trends in the new year. Number one is fight over vaccines. Number two is a mixed economic recovery. Number three is patching up the new world disorder. Uh, number four, more US-China tension. Five, companies in the front line on topics such as climate change and social justice. Number six, after the tax acceleration, some clarity in terms of what happens with all these fights with Amazon and, and uh, Facebook that are going on. We're gonna get some clarity next year. A less footloose tourism world is number seven. Number eight, an opportunity for climate change. 
number nine, the year of deja vu or a second take on 2020. And number 10, a wake up call to other risks. So those are the top 10 trends that the economist sees in uh, 2021. And let me close with, uh, since we are in the holiday season, uh, how the, some of the traditions that we're going through actually emerged. So these are from mental floss, the origins of some of our favorite Christmas traditions. So hanging stockings are linked to an old tradition of leaving shoes with hay on December 5th, the eve of St. Nicholas feast day. Caroling dates back to Victorian England, emerging visits to neighbors to, to wish them uh, happy holidays and linking it to Christmas carols. Christians, uh, when it comes to Christmas trees, Christians decorated evergreen trees with apples to represent the Garden of Eden, calling them paradise trees around the time of Adam and Eve name day, which is December 24th. Gradually, that became the tradition of the Christmas tree. Today, 25 to 35 million Christmas trees are sold in the United States a year. Why do we associate red and green with Christmas? Green is tied to the evergreens, red is tied to the holly berries. Uh, the ugly uh, Christmas sweater is a gift from Canada. It started in Vancouver in 2001 when somebody came up with one and it went viral to the rest of the world then. Cookies and uh, milk for Santa dates back to the Norse mythology. According to the legend, Odin had an eight-legged horse named Slipnir. Kids used to leave uh, treats for Slipnir, hoping that the Odin would favor them with gifts in return. Eggnog actually dates back all the way to the colonists who brought it to the U.S. from England. Nog was short for noggin, which was slang for a wooden cup. Mistletoe has been associated with fertility and vitality since ancient times. When Celtic druids saw it as a saw it saw it so because it blossomed even during the most frigid winters, and finally the first Christmas card was sent via mail in 1843 in England. The cardboard greeting showed a happy group of people participating in a toast and said simply, "A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year's to you." So. That card was extremely popular. Today we will call it, it went viral. It's so like hotcakes and Americans send 2 billion cards as a result every year. That is changing now. A lot of those are becoming e-cards. So on behalf of myself and the rest of the team, I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year's to you. And with that, I'll turn it over to Reed. All right. Thank you so much, Tony and uh, Tom and Kevin our producer, um, for all your great insights this year, uh, this most bizarre year, 2020, um, hopefully the most bizarre year. And uh, I too want to echo, uh, you know, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays to everyone. Uh, safeness, please. Um, good health to all. And um, please, again, any questions, comments, suggestions, uh, we invite them at operations at lpresearch.org. Um, and again, the website, lpresearch.org, uh, for all the latest research um, and news around crime control. And um, again, stay safe. Um, tune in. We'll keep rolling here. Um, but this will be our last podcast for, of course, 2020. 
on crime science on the weekly episodes. Kevin's got some more in store that we recorded on other topics. So um, stay safe and thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.